John chapter 13, and I'm reading from verse 33 through to verse 35. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 4, reading from verse 1 through to verse 7. Unity in the body of Christ. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Amen. Okay, it's confession time. Except, are we allowed to do that here? Isn't confession more of a a Roman Catholic thing? They do it, I'm sure of it. I, I think I've seen the little booths when I visited Catholic churches on holiday. Or was that Greek Orthodox? Or, or is it the High Anglicans? There's little confession booths in Anglican cathedrals, isn't there? Or is it the Methodists? They do confession, I'm sure. I've got a vague feeling they do. I think it's one of their lesser sacraments. Or, or did I just dream that? Well, anyway, here's my confession this morning. There are times when I really don't like church very much. There, I've said it. But before I ask for absolution, perhaps I'd better explain. I'm not talking about this particular church. I'm not talking about the congregation of Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. Hand on heart, I love this church and I love its congregation. Well, most of the time. Just occasionally I want to shoot people, but but it passes. No, what I mean when I say that I really don't like church very much is that I despair at much of what goes on in the name of the people of Christ. I despair at the division, the arguments, the fighting, the judgmentalism, the superiority, the condescension, the arrogance, and I could go on and on and on. In fact, yeah, I got about 20 minutes before the next hymn. It's tempting to do just that. But I'll hold off giving full vents to my frustrations just for a moment, and we'll see where that gets us. 
Many of you will know that Bloomsbury is open to the public during the week and that we have a, a faithful team of volunteers who sit at our reception desk out there welcoming everyone from lost tourists trying to find the British Museum or Covent Garden to famous actors on their way to a read-through of Doctor Who or Call the Midwife or New Tricks or something in the forum upstairs. Sometimes, if I have a bit of time to spare, I like to go and hang out in the foyer just to see who comes in through the door. It's not just an excuse to go star-spotting, I, I promise. Anyway, sometimes I will end up giving some tourists a guided tour of, of this room, the sanctuary. And almost inevitably, they'll ask me, what kind of a church is this? And of course, when I say Baptist, that can mean very different things to different people. For some, it means we're like the Southern Baptists of the USA. And so people will assume maybe that we're theologically fundamentalist. For others, it will mean nothing at all. And I find myself having to explain something about the origins of the Baptist church in the UK. Although at this point, it's usually fortuitous if Ruth wanders through the foyer, because she's our tame church historian. I'm just the Bible guy. I think part of what confuses people is the Normanesque front to the church. They think they're coming into a cathedral and then are surprised by what they meet when they come in through the doors. A couple of times recently, I've been asked by visitors to explain the difference, quite specifically, between Methodist, Baptist, and Catholic churches. And in Ruth's absence, I've found myself telling the story of how in the 4th century, Christianity was transformed by the Emperor Constantine and those that came after him from a persecuted and illegal sect to the official religion of the Roman Empire. And then how skipping forward through the division of the empire into Eastern and Western Christianity and on through the centuries of the Holy Roman Empire, we come to the Protestant Reformation, when a period of corruption and turmoil in the official Roman Catholic Church prepared the ground for Martin Luther and John Calvin and others to spearhead a breakaway movement as they sought to recover the true church that they believed had been lost by the Roman Catholics. And then we come to the UK and Henry VIII making his decisive break with Rome over a mixture of <coughs> theological conviction and an argument with the Pope over whether he could get divorced. And so we get to the Church of England, still a national church, but not one this time that owed allegiance to Rome or Byzantium. And then we come to the early Baptists breaking away from the Church of England, believing that they had discovered the true form of church, forming their first UK congregation here in London in 1612. And then eventually we come to the Methodists, whose founders, the Wesley brothers, never actually wanted to break away from the Church of England at all, but whose followers were forced to leave. And then we come to the great missionary movements of the 19th century, when Baptists and Methodists and Anglicans spread throughout the world, piggybacking the Roman, the British Empire, spreading their forms of church wherever they could. And suddenly, in just a few minutes of very basic church history, we've reinvented history at least 20 times, and we've got two millennia of power-grabbing, infighting, division, disorder, and domination. And you wonder why I say that I don't really like the church very much. I haven't even started on the Crusades or the Inquisition yet. It often 
seems to me, that whilst the teachings and example of Jesus as the revelation of a God of grace and love are a wonderful, life-transforming and inspiring thing, those who seek to follow those teachings and example seem to have a persistent and proven ability to take the community of Christ followers a very long way from the kind of thing Jesus was talking about and living out. What it needs, surely, is a fresh start, a reboot. Perhaps we who understand it, we who know what Jesus is about, we need to restart the true church in our own generation. Except it's been done before, which is why we're here in this slightly anomalous building with its Normanesque front and its unusual curved pew sanctuary explaining to visitors why we're not Catholic or Methodist or Anglican and why there are no little confessional booths down the side. In so many ways, I'd love to throw it all up in the air and start again. Doing it right this time, where everyone else has failed. Except, of course, that won't work. Because no matter how much we try and learn from the mistakes of the past, we will always end up making new ones, all of our own. The curious, diverse and fragmented nature of Christianity, with its different streams and denominations, tells us much about human nature and about our capacity to institutionalise the divine There are no easy answers to the deceptively simple question of how the body of Christ should order and organise itself. There are no easy answers to issues such as baptism and Eucharist and ministry, despite great reports that have been written on them. Each generation of Christ followers encounters a changing culture And forms of church that took shape in previous generations have to adapt and transform as culture shifts, or else they will die out as the cultures that gave them birth pass from memory. In my previous ministry, when I was working for the Baptist College based in Cardiff, I taught during the week, Monday to Friday, I taught ministerial students, many from the churches of Wales, uh, and I also taught at the university, teaching undergraduates. But then on Sundays, I had the privilege of representing the college to its constituency. And what that meant was eight years of Sunday after Sunday, travelling round South Wales and Pembrokeshire and the valleys and all of those kind of places where the church was once so strong. And I've stood in thousand-seater barns and preached to 12 elderly people who I could have had with me in the pulpit because there were 12 chairs in the pulpit for the six deacons on either side of the minister. Forms of church that took shape under one culture have died as that culture has shifted with the collapse of the minds and the changes in culture and language that have gone on over the last hundred years in Wales. The Welsh Revival is such a distant memory. 
each generation of Christ followers has to work out what the body of Christ will look like in their time and their generation. And this has never been more true than in our own world. You can trace the Protestant Reformation, which I was talking about earlier, to the rise of the printing press. I mean, there's theology in there too, but it's technologically driven, because it was when the ability came for people to write pamphlets, and then rather than have to copy them all out laboriously by hand, you could just bang a thousand of them out on a printing press in some back street place down by St. Paul's, and then have them circulated underground, and suddenly ideas took wing. And so the Protestant Reformation came into being. You could mass-produce and circulate books, and the world was changed. And in the last 20 years or so with the information revolution, the digital age has thrown before us a whole host of new challenges that in so many ways would mystify those who went before us. I mean, I... I was remembering this week, I can remember the first time I got somebody who offered me an email address. Uh, I was at university in Sheffield, and this guy I was sharing a house with in a student house um, was doing a degree in computer software engineering. And he said, I could get you an email address, Simon. I said, what's that then? He said, well, it would be simonwoodman at sheffield.ac.uk, and people can send you messages to it from all over the world. I said, great, Who? He said, well, well, I could send you one. I said, well, so how do I pick it up? He said, well, you go into the computer science building and you log on and, and then you, you can read them there. And I thought, this is pointless. The only person I know who's going to send me one is somebody I'm going to be having dinner with that evening. This is nuts. The world has changed. Ideas take wing in very different ways. I really don't get Twitter, but I'm told by those who do that, you know, revolutions come out of such things. And new forms of church are emerging around us. The virtual church is becoming an ever-present reality. More and more people are choosing to retain faith, but distance themselves from the institutions of church structures. After all, why go to church when you can meet like-minded fellow believers online? Why go to church when you can access sermons and worship material on YouTube and SoundCloud, almost certainly at a far greater quality than that which you get if you turned up at church on a Sunday? But even here, of course, in the supposedly egalitarian space of the internet, the possibilities for domination and control are ever-present. The religious websites that attract the most hits are the ones with the best advertising, the slickest presentation, and the best funding. I don't know if you've spent much time watching Christian TV as it is streamed to your satellite dish. I try very hard not to, but just occasionally somebody makes me sit down and uh, watch the God Channel. It does rather seem that it's dominated by a certain strand of Christianity that happens to be very well funded. The selling of worship is a multi-million dollar industry. And it has big similarities to the secular music industry. The live show generates album sales and merchandise sales throughout the year. And where we might legitimately ask in all of this is the Son of Man who had nowhere to lay his head. 
Where in all of this is the one who said to his disciples, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. So where in all of this complex, changing world of ours is the simplicity of Christian living? Where in all of this is the loving community of the body of Christ? Honestly, you know, sometimes it is enough to make me want to give up on the whole thing. Except as a wise man called Brian Hames once said to me, the saints of God are in the pews. I might want to give up on it all, but God hasn't and won't, because the saints of God are in the pews. It is one of the mysteries of faith that God continues to call us to one another, and that when we come together in the name of Christ, he is present with us by his Spirit in ways that are transformative and life-giving. And so we come to Paul and the letter to the Ephesians. The tendency of people towards institutionalization and the tendency of institutions towards control is actually nothing new. The forms it takes are different in every generation, but humans are still humans down the generations. We learn from our fathers and mothers ways of being which are helpful and ways of being which are less than helpful. And the process began in early Christianity almost as soon as believers started gathering in small groups for worship, for prayer, for preaching and teaching and mutual support. Because you discover fairly quickly that someone has to keep tabs on the money, someone has to prepare the room, someone has to cook the meal, someone has to prepare communion, someone has to do the flowers, someone has to call the meeting to order, someone has to decide who's preaching next week, someone has to choose the hymns. It doesn't take very long for something that looks quite like church to emerge from the Christ-centered enthusiasm of the early Christians. And the letter to the Ephesians gives us an insight into some of the struggles that they were facing. I beg you, says its author, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Why would he say this unless it were the case that the people in the church were not doing it? But he goes on, and it doesn't take a lot of reading between the lines, to work out some of the problems that the Ephesian church might have been facing. They are told that they should live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, you read between the lines as to why he needed to say that, and it starts to sound a bit like a church on the edge of tearing itself apart. There are people who are the opposite of humble, gentle, and patient. In other words, they are arrogant, vicious, and short-tempered. It is surely enough to make you want to give up on church altogether, isn't it? Except the call of God is to not walk away. The call of God on the people of Christ is to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Because in the unity of the people of Christ, the body of Christ is made real in the world for the good of us all. As Ephesians goes on, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And so these ancient and timeless words echo down to us through the millennia of Christian history with all of its complexity, and they call us in our time to be the body of Christ in our world, in our place. We are called to love one another despite our differences. We are called to bear with one another when we would rather walk away. We are called to resist the temptations to anger and arrogance and egotism. We are called to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Of course, our church isn't perfect. Of course, the ministers and deacons get it wrong sometimes. Of course, there are people who we disagree with. There may even be those who we want to shoot occasionally. But we are called to one another. And in our community, the way that we do it, we have ways of expressing our commitment to one another which give rise to the institution that we call Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. Baptism marks the point of entry into the body of Christ as we commit ourselves to a life of discipleship. It was only a few weeks ago that Sunil and Louisa were baptised here as they come into the family of this church. They've both also become members because membership of the church is an expression of our covenant relationship and our commitment to one another. We've got our AGM coming up, the annual general meeting exciting. But church meetings aren't just about business. They are times of prayerful gathering where members can share together in the sacred task of discerning the mind of Christ for this place at this time. Communion is a time of shared fellowship as we remember the body of Christ in our midst and commit ourselves to the way of the cross. But in all of these forms that we put around our calling to Christ and to his body that is the church, we need to remember that it is Christ we are following and that he calls us to live together in love. The danger to us here is the troubling fact that institutions have the capacity to make demons of us all. Institutions have the capacity to make demons of us all. They suck the loyalty of those who become part of them and they turn loyalty into service and service into servitude. Good people can do and have done great evil in the service of truly great institutions. And this is true even and perhaps especially of the institutions that we call church. Those who would faithfully serve Christ in the company of their fellow sisters and brothers can gradually and subtly over the years and decades and centuries 
become servants and slaves of institutions that still bear the name of their founder and still espouse the ideals of their saviour, but which ultimately demands the absolute allegiance of those who set out to serve Christ alone. As I said, institutions and even churches have the capacity to make demons of us all. Now, I love my church, genuinely. I love the unique place that is Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, and I am proud of the stand it takes on justice and inclusion. I am proud of its willingness to question assumptions and rethink faith for each new generation. I am proud of the people who give unstintingly and sacrificially service in and through Bloomsbury to see the world transformed in the cause of Christ. And I assume that many of us sat here today feel the same. Whether you've been coming here for years and have made a lifetime of commitment to and love for this place, or whether you've just recently arrived and are just starting to realise that this strange and wonderful church might just be your Christian home and family, we all of us need to hear the warning that even the best church has the capacity to make demons of us all. If we find ourselves worshipping the church and not Christ, something is going wrong. And yes, it is possible to worship a church. It is possible for our allegiance to subtly shift towards the institution we love and away from the one in whose service that institution was created. This is why, of course, we need to keep ourselves accountable. This is why we need one another We need help in this Christian journey of ours. We need fellowship and accountability and mutual pastoral care. We need our home groups. We need other groups such as Exchange or Tuesday Lunch. These times of gathering together genuinely matter because they provide contexts for this scattered congregation of ours to gather for the building up of authentic relationships based on trust and mutual respect. But perhaps most of all, we need to keep our worship services focused on Christ. And so we gather on Sunday mornings in the name of Christ to proclaim together our devotion to him and our commitment to living out his teachings and example. When we break bread and share wine in memory of Christ's sacrifice, we do so recommitting ourselves to the path of Christ-like sacrificial living. We baptise one another in the name of Christ, marking the beginning of our Christian journey in public commitment and shared obedience to the path of following Christ alone. This is why the worship practices and liturgies and sacraments of the church matter so much, not because of their outward form, but because they keep the church focused on Christ as its head, the one who called it into existence in the first place. A church which becomes focused on itself, its members, or even its mission at the expense of its total devotion to the cause of Christ is a church which has lost its way. I do not believe that this describes Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. But those of us who are committed to Bloomsbury need to know that even here, as in all churches, there is the capacity for deception and idolatry. Even this place will receive our worship if we offer it. And none of this is easy, and it never has been. But as Ephesians puts it, 
Each of us has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And each of us is called to walk the path of costly discipleship, living in love with one another, living out the commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us so that everybody will see that we are his disciples, committing ourselves day by day to following Christ and living in love and unity with our fellow believers. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are called to be and we are called to love. Amen.